Um, so we're going to be in Hebrews 8. We didn't quite finish it up last time. And I didn't bring along more copies, so... All right. Um, what I think would be good for us to do is to start on page 46 of your notes. We'll just do a little bit of review and get ourselves caught up. And then we're going to look at the sheet that I've passed out to you. We're going to do something a little bit different tonight, and I, I haven't done this a lot. Um, and part of that is because when you do what we call a categorical doctrine, uh, you're taking you're taking one of the main teachings of the text and you're expanding it to a lot of other passages that talk about it. We refer to it as categorical teaching or doctrinal teaching. It does take quite a bit of time, and unfortunately my life has been really crazy busy lately. Um, but it is important. Uh, in fact, I have the opportunity uh, next Sunday to go back and teach at my old home church down in Glendale. And it was one of the things that the pastor there taught me was the importance of categorical teaching. And I'll explain more about that as we get into it, and it'll make more sense to you when we come to it. But let's just first ask God's blessing on our time together. And I would really encourage all of you to be in a lot of prayer about the time in which we're living. Uh, we're actually, I believe, seeing the systematic destruction of our country. Um, and, you know, you don't want to read too much into the minds of other people. Uh, if you've heard anything about the uh, destruction of our food processing plants, you may not be aware that over 95 major food processing plants in this country have burned down mysteriously within the last year. You probably heard something about the cattle that died in Kansas. Because of the heat, they say, some first they said there were 3,000, then 10,000. Now, who knows how many. Um, reports from people on the ground say those cattle have all been poisoned. Uh, the water supply was poisoned. Uh, 10,000 cattle would feed a lot of people. Um, there's almost nothing that has been written about the slaughter of chickens and turkeys. Hundreds of thousands of chickens and turkeys at major uh, places where they grow them, Tyson chicken and, and all of those places, uh, because supposedly they had bird flu. Um, things are just not looking good for the future. And I want you to get in your mind that that's good news. Now you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Hard times shake people awake. And I believe that you and I, if we're on our toes and if our minds are focused and if we don't give in to fear, stop worrying about what's gonna happen to me, God will take care of me, we're here for a mission, we are gonna have greater opportunities to share Christ and the gospel with people in the days ahead than we have ever had before. Uh, I know all of you probably, like us, have uh, family and relatives. 
that are still hardened against the gospel or have fallen away. A lot of Christians that have drifted are going to wake up and, and be coming back in the days ahead, and we need to be there to uh, help stabilize and strengthen them in their faith. So let's, let's really be looking at this as a time of great opportunity. There are going to be some great Christian heroes made in the days ahead, and each and every one of us should desire to play the role that God wants us to play in that. So let's just pray together and uh, get ready to review uh, what we've seen in Hebrews 8 and look at the doctrine of the new covenant. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before the throne of your grace, we need to be reminded that the only reason we have an open and free access is because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. He paid the penalty for all our sins, past, present, and future. The debt is paid in full. We owe absolutely nothing. Not only has he removed our sins from us as far as the east from the west, but because of what he has done, you are able to impute his righteousness to our account. We stand before you as righteous as your own son. We are accepted in the beloved. And Father, we are so thankful for that. And we do realize that we are living in perilous times, and we realize that Times like this require uh, great vigilance and focus, concentration, diligence, dedication to your word, uh, dedication to prayer. All of these things are going to be very, very important to us in the days ahead. Father, at the same time that we're looking at what's going on in our nation and around the world, we all face personal problems, health problems, uh, problems with getting older, problems with uh, friends, family, neighbors. Uh, there, there never is a lack of problems for us to deal with. But Father, we are thankful that you have promised to meet all our needs. You have promised to sustain us through any and all trials. And we pray that we will be uplifted, that we will be buoyant, that we will uh, be excited to serve you in the times in which we live. We ask you to open our eyes now to Hebrews chapter 8, a wonderful and marvelous passage of Scripture, and just saturate our souls with divine truth and help us build spiritual muscle as we go out and apply these things in our life. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's just touch on the points that we've covered. Uh, the first point on page 46 is that the new covenant has a better, the word better you'll remember is uh, one of the key words of the book of Hebrews. It's a word that means superior. So we have a better or a superior high priest. And the author tells us here in Hebrews 8.1, this is the main point of the things that we're saying. So it's very easy for us to understand that this is the key theme of the book. The key theme of the book is the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And of course, no other book places so much emphasis on the humanity of Christ, but always in the background of stressing his humanity is his deity. And apart from the fact that he is the God-man, uh, we would have no hope at all. But of course, he has become 
our high priest, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And that means, of course, as he told the disciples in Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now that should rattle our cages a little bit and cause us to think just with regard to what I was saying. We're living in difficult times. We're going to be tested. We're going to be tried. But we need to remember, Jesus Christ controls history. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He allows men to do evil. He allows people freedom to choose right or wrong, good or evil, truth or error. But He supervises and directs all of it to the ultimate good of His perfect plan. So uh, we have confidence in Him as He's guiding us through these times. We looked, secondly, the second point that I make here in verses 2 through 5, the new covenant has better, a better tabernacle, a better tabernacle or a better temple. And of course, that's because it is the temple in heaven. Uh, you'll remember, I think it's in Hebrews 9, uh, I forget the exact verse, but we'll come across it, that the tabernacle on earth was made according to the copy of the things in the heavens. So what we actually see when we look at the tabernacle is a facsimile, if you will, of something that is perfect and eternal. And we looked last week at the seven uh, articles of furniture in the tabernacle, we saw how each of those relates to Christ. Uh, if you have your notes, it's right there in the middle of page 47. And then our third point that we were working on when we ended is that the new covenant is founded on better or superior promises. So we have a superior high priest, a superior temple or tabernacle, and superior promises. And the main reason for this is because the new covenant is an unconditional covenant. The Old Covenant, we divide our Bibles into Old Testament, New Testament, but what we're actually saying is Old Covenant and New Covenant. And Jesus, of course, anticipated the New Covenant when He was with the disciples in the upper room, but it was actually inaugurated by His death on the cross. And this is why He gave them the elements and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, this represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant, uh, which is uh, given to you. And his finished work on the cross split history in two. If you think about it, and oftentimes we use what we call a timeline, and here we have eternity past, and here we have eternity future, and right in the middle of, the, of history is the cross. Christ split time in two. And that's the dividing point between Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, the finished work of Christ on the cross. The most important event in all of history took place over three days. Doesn't take away from his incarnation, doesn't take away from his life, doesn't take away from his teaching, but this is the key to everything. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our salvation was secured forever. All who believe in Him, simple childlike faith, 
It's not a matter of working hard to be good. It's not a matter of giving up your sins, which you can't do anyway. It's not a matter of going through some ritual like baptism. It's a simple matter of childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, the word believe is used 99 times as the only criteria for eternal salvation. And the moment that anyone exercises simple faith in Christ, they are taken out of Adam. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 22. In Adam, all die. That means if you're born once, you're born physically alive but spiritually dead. In Christ, all are made alive, and that is eternal life. So this is something that happens in a moment, in a split second of time. Hearing the gospel, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and we hear the promise of the gospel, we hear what Christ has done for us, and we respond with that simple childlike faith, and at that moment, our lives are split in two between our old life and our new life, and we become a new creature in Christ. So the new covenant is founded on better promises, and the reason for that is that these are unconditional promises. I'm just going to read verse 6 through the end of the chapter. I'll make a couple of comments, and then we want to uh, review why these promises are better, and then we'll look at our doctrine. Verse 6 says, Now he, Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent than Moses, more excellent than the Old Testament priesthood, more excellent than Melchizedek. We've seen all of this in the first seven chapters. Inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Remember that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul tells us, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. The word mediator is a word, mesites is the Greek word, and it literally means one who can lay his hands on both parties. You might remember in Job, I believe it's in chapter 9, verse 33, Job cries out and says, if only there was a mediator between me and God. Well, there is. And we have him, and that is Christ. And the reason he can lay his hand on us both, which means he can fully meet the needs and interests of both parties, both of God and man, is because he is the God-man. So he is our mediator. So he says we have a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, you know, a lot of people have kind of a crazy idea that God tried the law and that didn't work, so he tried the cross and maybe that'll work, maybe it won't, and if it doesn't work, he'll try something else. No, everything was perfectly planned out before history even began. And as Paul explains to us in Galatians chapter 3, the whole purpose of the law and the prophets, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the rituals, was all to be a shadow that would lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints whose eyes were open, who were listening to the ministry of the Spirit through their prophets, 
realized that what they were in was a shadow time pointing to a time of full reality. And David probably expresses that better than any other prophet in the Old Testament as you read through the Psalms. In his mind, he was already dwelling in the temple. In his mind, he was already in the Holy of Holies. He called it the secret place of the Most High, and that's where he lived within his mind because he understood that everything in the temple or the tabernacle where he was not allowed to go was a picture of some place where God wanted him to enter in by faith. So we have better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second. Why would you have a second if the first one's perfect? Because finding fault with them, I think it's very interesting here that he says them, the problem was not the covenant, the problem was the people the covenant was made with. Do you remember what God said to Moses and Moses passed on to the people in Exodus 19 and verse 4? He said, and this is the key that tips us off, if you then I. If and then are the keys to a conditional covenant. It's conditional on the response of the recipients. If you keep my law, God said, then you will be to me a special treasure and I will exalt you above all the peoples of the earth. But it depended on the obedience of the people. So because the first covenant was not faultless, he says in verse 8, finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord when, here's the key, I will. Not dependent on you, not dependent on your response, dependent on two things. Number one, the faithfulness of God. And number two, the finished work of Christ. That's all it depends on. Is God faithful? Absolutely. Is the work of Christ finished? Absolutely. Therefore, is the covenant secure? Absolutely. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's quoting here from Jeremiah 31. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. This is the them that he referred to earlier there when he said finding fault with them. The them in verse 8 are the people who did not continue. I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will. Now notice all the I wills here. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. In other words, Everyone who trusts in Christ and enters into the family of God will have a personal relationship with God as his child. 
I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. What a marvelous, wonderful promise for us. Yes. In um, Exodus chapter 6, between verses 6 and 8, there are seven I will statements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in Genesis 12, too, when God calls Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, we actually have a number of covenants and it's important to distinguish whether they're a conditional or unconditional covenant, but the covenant God made with Abraham was also unconditional. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Holly. Verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. I've pointed out to you three passages in Hebrews. I'm just going to repeat them if you haven't written them down. Here in verse 13, obsolete, back in chapter 7 and verse 18, uh, in that passage he uses the phrase, the annulling of the former commandment. It's uh, actually a uh, term that refers to a legal action by which something is annulled. And then in chapter 10 and verse 9, we have the word takes away. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Why do I point this out? Because there are a lot of people who are still trying to live under Old Testament economy. For example, any church that has priests, just think about it for a moment. Any church, denomination, any of them that have an order of priests is violating the new covenant. There's a lot of them that do that by various names, various titles, so on and so forth. Think of how many people try to establish rituals like the Old Testament. We don't live by ritual under the new covenant. We live in reality. Why is that? We'll find out in chapter 10, every ritual was a shadow of a coming reality. We don't need the ritual. We don't need the incense. We don't need uh, sprinkling holy water. Uh, my dad always told me, you know how they get holy water? And I said, no. He said, they just boil the hell out of it. <laughs> I guess that would work. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the incense, the holy water, uh, all of those things, they're all an attempt to go back to what the Jews were living under in the Old Covenant. By doing that, what are we losing? What are we missing? We're missing the reality that we could be having. And we don't want to do that. So the new covenant has become obsolete. Notice on page 48, and then we're going to get into our doctrinal sheet that I handed out to you. We've got five promises in this section. The promise of a covenant based on grace alone. That's pretty marvelous. Based on grace alone. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You're not trying to attain to it. It's a gift. That's in verses 6 through 9. Then we have the promise of the new birth. Verse 10. And then the promise, third, of the personal knowledge of the Lord. 
It's not like I have to go through someone else or someone else has to uh, communicate to God for me. We know him personally. We're his children. We're members of his family. And therefore, we have that personal relationship and personal knowledge. Fourth, the promise of complete cleansing from sin. How marvelous is that? I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I'll remember no more. And how many times do we as believers beat ourselves up over things that we've done in the past and sometimes we keep asking God, forgive me for what I've done, forgive me for what I've done. It's, it's done, it's taken care of. And it really is a step of faith to step into the confidence of that and relax and realize it's taken care of. And it can be a tremendous relief and a tremendous unburdening for us in our lives. And then finally, uh, verse 5, the promise of liberation from the law of Moses. I don't know about you, but I would hate to live under the law. I would hate to try to keep track of various, people say, 613 to 614 commands in the law of Moses. I would hate to get, have to go through every day of my life wondering if I had kept every one of those. Just the Sabbath alone would drive you crazy, particularly as it was later amplified and expanded and multiplied by the oral law. You know, you can't eat the egg of a chicken that laid it on the Sabbath because the chicken had to work. Uh, some of you, that's, that's the way they thought. Uh, some of you may have been to Israel, and you'll notice in Israel on the Sabbath, the elevators do not work by you pushing a button. They stop at every floor automatically. Because if you push the button, you're working. But of course, you can walk into the elevator and walk down the hall to your room, and that's not work. But pushing that button, we don't want you to have to push that button. It's really, really crazy. How wonderful it is to have the freedom that we have in Christ. Marvelous, wonderful freedom, but something that we don't want to uh, abuse in any way. Now with that, I want you to look at your sheet on the doctrine of the new covenant. And I point out here that it's impossible to properly assimilate a full knowledge of any teaching or doctrine in God's Word without looking at it categorically. And when I talk about a category, it's important for us to understand this is not something that we're dreaming up. This is taking, whether you want to call it a topic, a teaching, a doctrine, that comes up naturally in the text and expanding it by looking at all of the other passages that talk about it. And you can do this with, I mean, some things are not that significant. You could do a doctrine on tears in the Bible and look at all the places where tears are shed in the Bible. It would be interesting and it would be informative but it's not that crucial. We're talking about what we would refer to as major doctrines. Major doctrines, doctrine simply means teaching, major teachings of the Word of God. 
I think by now, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, we could say that the new covenant is a major doctrine. So we're going to take it and we're going to develop it categorically, uh, as I've explained. Before I do that, let's consider that, and I'm sure you've all heard this, what is the most important rule of biblical interpretation? Context. The old joke from seminary or Bible school is the three most important rules about biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. Well, that's not so silly, really, because there are three areas of context that it's important for us to keep in mind. The first we would call historical or cultural. All of this is in your notes. I know why I do so much for you guys. I used to make people write all of this out, and I'm just, I'm just handing it to you on a silver plate. So when we talk about context, when we're studying Scripture and uh, we uh, are wrestling maybe with why people are doing what they're doing or why this has meaning to them uh, that it doesn't have to us, we have to think ourselves back and study ourselves back into the culture. Uh, there's actually a, a big commentary, and I don't have the name of it, and I didn't bring it along with me, uh, but it, it's all about the cultural applications to the New Testament. It just basically goes through the New Testament, and it deals with each passage and brings out cultural things, historical things, that we may not be aware of. It's a very valuable book to have. So historically, we want to go into the context of the time in which it was written. You might want to jot this down. It's a very uh, important insight. Scripture must be interpreted in light of the time in which it was written. One of the big mistakes people make is they read Scripture and interpret it with a Western American mindset. And that's where a lot of people go astray. We have to try as much as possible to grasp the mindset, the times, and the culture uh, of the people in the time in which it was written. Not only do we need that, but we also need language and grammar. We know that the Old Testament was written predominantly in Hebrew. There's some Aramaic, particularly in the book of Daniel. Uh, we know that the New Testament was written in what was called Koine Greek. Koine Greek means the common Greek. It was basically the street language of its time. Uh, and it makes it very easy once we understand what the Greek is saying to translate it into American street language, just the common language of the day. But it's important for us to understand that, and it's important for, particularly for the teacher, to understand not just the meaning of words, but the relationship of words, and how those words interact with each other. It's referred to as syntax, and the relationship of words within the syntax, uh, the original meaning of the words, the form of the verb, all of those things can become very important. And then it brings us down to doctrines or categories. 
Now to make it very simple for you, all teaching should come with ice. You like iced tea? Summertime, it's hot. You like ice water? All teaching should come with ice. What do I mean by this? Well, there are words that help us, uh, and this is just an acronym to help us keep these things in mind. There's a word called isagogics. And isagogics refers to history and culture going back into the time in which scripture was written. Isagogics, that's I-S-A-G-O-G-I-C-S. -I, I see some of you looking at it because you can't read my writing, but don't worry, I can't either. <laughs> then we have categories, which is what we're studying now. We're studying a category of truth. In other words, if your workshop looks like mine, everything is scattered everywhere. If your office looks like mine, you can ask my wife, everything is scattered everywhere. It's so much easier when everything has its place. Well, when we look at scripture, if we think of our knowledge of scripture as a file cabinet, and there are lots of different little drawers, and in each of those little drawers is a different category of information, it makes it so much easier for us to start thinking in big terms about the Bible. If all I do, and let's face it, most teachers, pastors, don't even teach verse by verse through the Bible. So they're already missing context. If you go to church on Sunday, and please, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody, I'm just dealing with a principle. If you go to church on Sunday and you get a passage out of Matthew, and you get a sermon on that passage, and then the next Sunday you go and you get a verse or a portion out of Ephesians, and then the next week you go and you get a portion out of Daniel. How are you ever going to be able to put that together in your mind? You're being robbed of the ability to assimilate and organize your knowledge of the Bible. At the same time, we can go verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew or the book of John or as it is here, the book of Hebrews. But if we don't stop to latch on and grasp some of the major teachings, we're not going to be able to relate them to other major teachings. For example, if I throw out to you terms like redemption, justification, reconciliation, propitiation, those may be just words that you know have some spiritual significance, or you may even know the definition of them. Justification. You often hear people say it's, just as if I never sinned, but that's wrong. That's incorrect. Justification means not only the subtraction of all your sins, but the addition of the righteousness of Christ. And just as if I never sinned only covers one half of that equation. It leaves out the fact that we have been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
I've heard people say, when you get saved, it's just as if you were Adam in the garden all over again. Well, you know what that tells me? You can lose your salvation because when you sin, it's gone. But if we understand that Christ not only took away all our sins, but also gave us his own righteousness that can never, ever be taken away, that adds a whole new element to our thinking. Well, that is true. Huh? That is definitely true. I never even thought about that, but that is so true. Yeah. And then we have the E stands for exegesis, and exegesis is just a fancy word for the analysis of the scripture in the original languages. I-C-E, isagogics, categories, and exegesis. When we develop the skill of using these, and anyone can do it, you don't have to be trained in the original languages. Obviously it helps, uh, but there are many, many uh, aids and helps that you can use uh, you can look up the original words. You can look up the definitions. We are so fortunate to live in the time in which we live. I often think about those who had to teach the word for the first 1,000, 1,500 years of church history. They had almost no resources. We have more resources than we can keep up with. You can ask Nan. Every week there are orders coming in. Our house is bursting at the seams with books. There are books laying everywhere. Why? Because they're available and I feel like it's my responsibility to know what they have to offer and to share that with you. So we've kind of gone a long way around, but this at least explains why the next eight points are important. So if you will, just look at your notes there. Number one, the new covenant was anticipated by the fading glory reflect, reflected on the face of Moses. And that comes from 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and Exodus 34, verse 29 through 35. And I'm, I'm stating these even though you've got them in your notes for the people that are going to be listening to this online. But we have to pause here because even when you do point-by-point point doctrines, sometimes it's important to look at the passages. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There are a couple of very, very important things here. The point that we make is simple. The new covenant was anticipated by the fading glory reflected on the face of Moses. I want to start in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, where he starts talking about the new covenant and how the new covenant is so much more glorious than the old covenant. He says, if the ministry of death, speaking of the Mosaic law, because it declared that if you commit sin, you die, written and engraved on stones was glorious, and it was. I mean, it came from God. It was a glorious thing so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Now, the simple point that Paul's making is the new covenant is much more glorious than the old covenant. Okay, that's, that's the main thrust of what he's saying. 
Also, the fact that the Old Covenant was a ministry of death, whereas the New Covenant is a ministry of life. One was a ministry of condemnation, the New Covenant a ministry of justification. So we see those contrasts. But what I want to point out to you is the little phrase at the end of verse 7, which glory was passing away. We get the idea in a casual reading of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that Moses put a veil over his face because the glory on his face was fading. Now, in time, it did fade. You remember when Moses went up to the mountain and spent time in the presence of God? He came down the mountain. You can get it in Exodus 34. His face was glowing and the people were terrified. The main reason Moses put the veil on his face was not that the glory was fading away, but that the people were terrified. All right? But the problem that we run into here is the translation of this word fading away. The word that's used here is the Greek word kat argeo. It would better be translated to render powerless or to neutralize. To render powerless or to neutralize. It's the same word that's used in Romans 6.6 6 when it says our old man has been done away with. Any of you here have no problem with your sin nature? We know that we all do. So when Paul said that the old man, the old sin nature has been done away, he doesn't mean that it passed away. He means it was rendered powerless. And how was it rendered powerless? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the same way that the Holy Spirit neutralizes the old man in Romans 6, the new covenant has that effect on the old covenant. And this is really what Paul's point here is. That the coming of the new covenant would cause the old to be rendered powerless. Probably the best translation. So the point again, the new covenant was anticipated by the fading glory, or we could say the neutralizing power of the coming of the new covenant. Moses covered his face for the same reason that the tabernacle had a veil. Why was the veil in the tabernacle? No man can see God and live. No man could enter into the presence of God and the glory of God. When Christ died on the cross and that veil ripped from top to bottom, it said that the way of access is open. Why? Because now we have been made perfectly acceptable to God. Okay? Point two, the old covenant was temporary from the start. But the new covenant is eternal in nature. Uh, I see, again, a lot of people who say, well, God tried the law and that didn't work, so he scuttled that program and now he's trying something new. Who knows, maybe he'll scuttle it. No, the new covenant is a permanent eternal covenant. It will last forever. 
And of course, we see that in passages in Hebrews 7, 16, 17, uh, Hebrews 7, 24 to 28, and Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 14. Uh, whenever I hand out a paper like this, by the way, a good thing for you to do during the week, sit down and go through it and look up the passages. It gives you a ready-made study guide to help you get firm in your mind what that teaching is all about. Point three, the new covenant is specifically prophesied in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, the passages are Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And though the new covenant was originally offered to Israel and Judah, it has been entered into by the church. The, the offer of the new covenant was to Israel and Judah. That's contained in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Uh, you can go back and look up those passages. Also Ezekiel 26, verses 23 to 30. Um, but Israel rejected it. Why? Because entrance into the new covenant with all its blessings requires what? Simple faith in Christ. Remember when Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you in John 6. And it caused many of his disciples to leave him. They said he's gone crazy. He's teaching something that doesn't make any sense and it's absolutely disgusting. But he was talking about faith. And people often missed, the woman at the well missed what Jesus was talking about because she was thinking physical, he's thinking spiritual. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 missed the point because he was thinking physically being born again. Jesus is thinking spiritual. So when we come to John chapter 6 and he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we connect it to Matthew 26 and the other passages in the upper room where he says to the disciples, this represents my body, which is broken for you. This represents my blood, which is given for you. And how do we enter into the fullness of what his body and his blood did? Simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ. Except you become as little children. You know, some people are too smart to enter eternal life. It's tragic, but they're just too smart. And I've seen over the years so many brilliant, brilliant people who could not get over the simplicity of the gospel because they were incapable of becoming like a little child. They were very <coughs> impressed with their intelligence. And uh, some who broke through that barrier, like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and others, Though they were brilliant, brilliant men, they finally realized you have to become like a little child. I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He has an ability to explain things in a simple way that it just absolutely blows my mind. If you've never read the book, get the book. And obviously it's not complete. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it really is a tremendous uh, book dealing with the simplicity of the Christian faith. All right, point four. Whereas the old covenant was conditional, dependent on human obedience, and therefore it was weak through the flesh, that's what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 3, the new covenant is unconditional, dependent on the faithfulness of God and the finished work of 
Christ. And of course, the author is going to make a big point of that when we get to Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14. Once again, remember, when we're talking Old Covenant, New Covenant, divide history. Old Covenant, New Covenant. We divide our Bibles, Old Testament, New Testament is saying the same thing. But don't just think about your Bible being identified or divided that way. Think about history. It's so much more important when we relate it to history. We are living in New Testament times. New Covenant times. And it will help you greatly if you can start thinking in your mind, what are some of the benefits and blessings of being in this new covenant time. Sit down sometime and make a list and it'll help you. All right, point five, and I'm going to end with this one and we will pick up next week. The old covenant operated under a barrier between God and men. Illustrated once again by the veil of Moses, illustrated by the veil in the temple. The new covenant opens the way into the presence of God as pictured by the rent veil. When the veil ripped from top to bottom, as Christ said, it is finished. God was declaring the plan of salvation is complete. The payment for sin is paid in full and the way into God's presence is now open. But it can only come to those who trust Christ as their Savior. Right? So I'm going to leave it right there because that veil and the law of Moses, that, that barrier, what, what was that barrier designed to represent? It was designed to represent the barrier of sin between God and man. And we'll pick it up next week and we're going to look uh, a little bit at that barrier and how that barrier has been removed. So, if you will, let's question. All right. Now, what does isagogics mean again? Isagogics, historical cultural study. Look it up on your computer, type in isagogics, and it'll tell you. It's simply a word that refers to the study of history and culture. Okay.